Welcome back to How They Train. Today, AFL royalty Brendan Goddard joins me for a chat. Brendan played 334 games, was a two-times All-Australian, club best and fairest, captain, and played in multiple grand finals, including one of the best games an individual's ever played, in my opinion. Brendan, thanks so much for joining me today. How's everything going in your life, mate? Uh, we're pretty good, thanks. Yeah, uh, when I say we, uh, it's a, a pretty big uh, family in the minute. We've got three kids, a wife and I, three girls. So um, we're right in the the, uh, the middle of it with uh, three of them being under six. So they're five and a half, four, and, and just turned one. So mm-hmm. Billy, Mackenzie, and Hallie are their names. So yeah, we're right, uh, right in the middle of it. A uh, little one just... Oh, sorry, the oldest one just started school this week. So, uh, you know, time seems to be traveling pretty fast. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a stay at home dad at the minute. My wife's back at work a couple of days a week and I'm kind of waiting for a uh, footy season to start. So, uh, you could probably say the last three years have been pretty cruisy, to be honest, mate. I am um, since retiring. Um, I haven't done a hell of a lot, to be honest. So, a bit of media work here and there, but uh, deliberately took some time off and then kind of one year's turn into three. So was your plan after footy to always just get jump, jump straight into like family and, and being a family man? Or did you have, you know, coaching aspirations or, or were you going to go and work in other fields or the media? Yeah, uh, well, I deliberately, uh, so yeah, obviously knowing, um, you know, that I was closer to the end than I was to start. So, um, and, you know, as soon as you turn 30, um, that uh, birth certificate, you, you you know that you're on kind of limited time. So. <laughs> uh, I made the constitution, yeah, that I wanted to take a year off. Um, as you're well aware, and you kind of pointed out, you know, 334 games over 17 years. I started when I was a 17 year old, so I practically hadn't really taken time off other than ha- having holidays in the off season. So, um, and one of the big factors was, yeah, we're spending more time with the family. So at that particular stage, and when I retired, I had two kids at that stage, um, and yeah, the idea was to spend more time with them and then to do other things that my wife and I in particular hadn't experienced and haven't been able to do because of restrictions with footies and the timing and our off season, all that falls into place and do some things selfishly for myself that I haven't, wasn't, or wasn't able to do. So, um, as I said, one year of that, I did a bit of media in that, so I wasn't doing nothing. And we, we also own an F45 franchise in Richmond, um, with a couple of mates and, um, Ironically enough, with another retired footballer, Jared McVeigh from Sydney. So uh, we had that on the side, um, and that's all kind of looks after itself with Glenn, my best mate, being uh, in charge of that. But um, yeah, one year kind of turned into three because of circumstances. So um, conscious decision not to uh, get back into footy straight away, uh, conscious decision to take really a year off and, and almost um, act as if I was fully retired um, from all things. And then um, as I said, because of the circumstance, it kind of turned into three. And I had, I did have plans to kind of venture outside of football and get involved in a few other things, but that just didn't come to fruition because because of the circumstances. So um, I'm sure it's been tough for everyone, as we know. But um, yeah, and the silver lining in that over three years, I've got to spend more time with my kids and wife than you know I ever ever envisaged and probably ever will in my life because this this stage in their life, being so young, you obviously never ex- you know have that experience again unless you have more kids. Yeah. Well, sort of as you like touched on there, you, you did spend a long time in the AFL system, didn't you? Like you're an, a number one draft pick and, and you're in the system for 17 years, played over 300 games. Like not many, um, not many guys do that. So can you sort of take me, take me inside when you get to the end of that time, 
are you sort of still excited by being an AFL player or do the day-to-day things like the training and, and the lifestyle and, and even the playing side of things, do they get a bit old and, and you're ready to, to move on? Uh, it's obviously very individualised this and everyone feels differently, but I don't think you can survive, you know, as long as I have and others, you know, like Shawnee Burgoyne or Dustin Fletcher, that particularly at that age when you do hit 30 and you've been around for 15 years or so already, if you don't love it and you're not willing to do the little things, you, you can't you can't get through these days. So that's one of the important things. There's, there's no cheating the system in this. There's there's a few guys or there's some rare individuals that are able to, to have long careers and longevity in their careers with being average trainers, and there's a few of those, um, but they're very, they're very rare. So I always knew to, to have longevity in the game and consistency, you know, you know I thought when I retired, I was still playing pretty good football, and I think physically all my, um, you know, numbers, GPS results, all that kind of thing, games played in the last seven years, all that would would stack up uh, against anyone at the footy club at the time. So um, I still loved it because I was willing to, willing to still do the work. Um, and I think, you know, allowed me to play for as long as I did with, you know, arguably the consistency I did up until the day I retired. Yeah. Well, that's how I see you as well. So I'm I, like, I'm a massive AFL fan and, and I always looked at you as someone who every single week showed up, um, you know, like I don't really remember you having any bad games really not not like some people have um and i often wondered why that was and and then i sort of would hear uh, um as i'm sure other people would that, that in the media you were a very intense hard-working player and i i sort of like always wondered whether maybe maybe you were just a guy who behind the, like closed doors was like a really hard trainer and and did everything right and, and expected really high standards of himself and maybe that's why you were so consistent week in week out yeah, I, I think there's again, there's no secret recipe. There's and I learned that pretty early. Um, I learned it pretty quickly in my AFL career, but I was lucky enough to have, you know, we're all at the end of the day, we're all a reflection of our parents, right? And the people we grew up around and, and hung around with. So my dad's a really hard workout. You know, he's thinking about retiring in the next couple of years. He's how he's now like sixty seven or something, but yeah, it's hard for him to retire because he 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 loves to work. He loves money as well. He's a tight ass, but it's one of the reasons. But yeah, he's a hard worker. My mum's a really hard worker. Um, so that was ingrained with me in, in my early days. Um, and then, uh, so I was lucky in that sense. I didn't, hard work was never really daunting for me. So I figured out pretty early getting the AFL system that the things that held me back, um, you know, because admittingly I did struggle for consistency in my first couple of years. Being a bit younger, I was 17. There's probably a bit more slack given to younger guys these days, but I figured out pretty quickly the best players are the best trainers and the best preparers. So I was hell-bent on being that was the quickest way to success and consistency and longevity. So I was I was hell-bent on being, quite frankly, I had it I had it written up on my wall every time I walked out my bedroom and walked out the door to training. Is I one of the little affirmations and mottos that I had is that I'm going to be the best trainer at the footy club. And that's what I strive, strive to do each week. And again, that's the quickest way to success. You, you, you mix in hard work and, and talent. You generally get a really good player. Um, and there's there's a few rare individuals where you got really rare talent and, you know, a lack of hard work or not a lack of hard work. Because there's got to be a certain degree of hard work, right? Or else you get tossed out in the pavement regardless of who you are. But um, you may still get the superstars, you know, Dusty Martin, Dane Swan's one that comes to mind. <laughs> Heard about some people 
that did coach Dane Son said they've never seen the worst Brownlow medalist uh, trainer uh, <laughs> out on the track. So, um, but there's a few exceptions to the rule. Uh, but majority, if, if I was going to give advice to any young kid, there's um, hard work will will get you to where or it'll give you your best chance anyway, is, is what we used to say. There's no guarantees in life. There's no guarantees in football, but uh, working hard uh, and creating really good habits uh, in your preparation, that'll give you your best chance to succeed. And, and when you sort of walk, first walk through the doors, um, who were the guys at the club at the time um, that were working really hard and you did model yourself on? Uh, early days, it was kind of easy to gravitate towards like the, the third, fourth year players um, being a little bit younger than 17 year old. So that was that was Rui um, at that particular time. But he had learnt that off, off Aaron Hamill, Fraser Garrick, uh, Robert Harvey, some guy, uh, a guy that's kind of unheralded and not talked about enough in terms of having an impact on that culture early days is Andrew Thompson. Who was a you know captain at St Kilda, but he was a ruthlessly hard worker of of Mr. Few. Um, but they were, they were the main oh, Lenny Hayes, Stephen Baker, who was just a, a rare individual, but one of the mentally toughest blokes I've I've ever come across in my life, let alone football. But so we so we're lucky. We had we had great role models. So that's that's what I strove to do. I, I remember one of the things was I wanted to be a better runner than Robert Harvey. Wouldn't say I got there in the end, but there was there was times where I was I was beating halves, even though he was 38, whatever he was in <laughs> his career. But that's one of the, the little things that I set myself is because I knew that would, again, that would give me the best chance. But yeah, we're, we're all lucky to have unbelievable role models and really hard workers that, that laid the foundations through that early stage of my career at St Kilda through 2003, four, five, that actually ultimately um, allowed us to have this success that we had um, over a long period of time from, you know, from 2004 all the way to 2010. Yeah, and you do hear stories um, in the AFL world that sort of get built up, and and some of those blokes you just mentioned there were guys who were always talked about in the media as being really hard workers. You know, like it was um, sort of folklore. You know how hard Robert Harvey would would run and would train, and mm-hmm. and then you know yourself and Nick Revolt later on down the track sort of were talked about in a very similar manner. I think, and can you sort of um, like open the doors to Clubland for us and like talk to us about? What kind of things were you actually doing? And, and is there any stories you remember about, you know, just like crazy training stories that, that people wouldn't have heard before? Um, a week of training in AFL club, the, the average fit person would actually be able to do. So you heard about the Port Adelaide and the, you know, I think it was more a placebo effect for, for them, but uh, talking about how we do the most Ks in a week and it was like 55 Ks in a week and all that kind of thing. But what other people didn't know is that they actually counted every step that they took. <laughs> so it was 55 or other, other clubs. We used to, we used to monitor like only a certain speed. So above five kilometers. So we might spit out 40 Ks a week and you hear about Port Adelaide bragging back in the day, they're doing 55 and it's more than any other club. But, um, but we, we, we strive to be the hardest as a group. We strive on being the hardest working group across the board. And I think, I think we proved that people coming in from the footy club that hadn't been part of St Kilda, you know, staff turnover is um, a regular thing in the AFL. So from year to year, we'll come in from and people being at other footy clubs and successful clubs, mind you, and say, you blokes are the, the hardest working team I've, I've ever come across. But that wasn't that wasn't a natural thing, right? So that was built through um, a lot of hard work and, and cultural building and um, feedback, all that kind of thing. But so back to my main point, a week of training in an AFL club, it's solid, but the ability to continually do that from week to week and back up is the hardest thing. So when when you've got a four or five week training block, is to actually train at the same level. It's not the tra- same level; it's the same intent 
as you did in the first week because it's easy to train well when you feel well, right? So I, I say to young guys, not one person on an AFL list gets out of bed every morning, particularly in the preseason, and feels 100%. They roll out of bed and, you know, they feel 100%. It's what separates the good to great players is their ability to, to go to training and train with the same intent they do when they feel 100% is when they, when they feel at 75%. Because that's where you, that's where you get your greatest improvement, not only physically but mentally, right? I think more mentally than anything. That knowing that you roll out of bed and you say, "I actually feel like shit today," and I've done it a hundred times before, is drove to training and said, "Shit, I, I think I'm just going to cruise through today." And you know, I even you know, they start making excuses. The back's a bit sore. I go to the physio and you know, potentially do half a session, but guilt kicked in for me, and I couldn't do that because I knew I was just kind of kidding myself, and I was I was cutting corners. So that, that's the real challenge for players is to do that. Because, again, anyone can train well and look good when they're feeling 100%, but it's the ability that when you're in your third block of training or your fourth block of training when things get really hard is that you still have the same intent because you won't be able to train at the same level, right, as when you're 100%. But as long as you have that intent that you're getting everything out of myself today, what I've got, I'm at 75%, I'm going to get 75% out of myself today. That's, that's the most challenging thing. And was like so, particularly when we talk preseason, but but training in general, were, were your preseasons all pretty consistent over your time at the club, or were they were they you know much different during those premiership years versus you know the the early days when you got there and then and then maybe even after the premiership years? Um, like, was there certain coaches that drove you know hard work more than other ones, or was it all player driven? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I was lucky enough to have you know a fair fair bit of stability. Grant Thomas and Ross Lyon through, you know, my first eight years of my career. Uh, Scotty was my last two, so at St Kilda anyway. But so it was, it was real stability and they both had the same philosophies around training. So we were quite lucky. But the staff turnover, fitness staff do, they do come and go from year to year. So we had a number of guys come in. So generally their philosophies change around, you know, they, they've got an end point, but their road, the road to that endpoint may change a little bit based on what they've seen, the experience. So a preseason might be more about, you know, speed endurance, or someone else might just focus on endurance. So it's generally all the same, but it's 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 kind of different versions of to get to this endpoint. So it was all the same, but we got to a point where, as a younger players and younger group, I think you need to be told what to do because you don't know any different, right? And that's a that's a that's a there's another argument for that with the Gen Z kids coming in these days thinking they know everything, but <laughs> you need to be told what to do. And then we got to a point in our career, which was always the main goal. Grant Thomas's main goal was to create an environment where it's player driven. So from the trust you have in one another to go away uh, in the off season to train and do the work to come back in great shape because pre-season and, and off seasons weren't a, off seasons kind of when I just started off season, the days were gone of the off seasons being a time where, you go and just fully enjoy yourself and pre-seasons were there to get fit again. Pre-seasons quickly became, it was my second year, there was a real switch that pre-season you're here to, to improve, not to get fit. You should already be fit when you arrive for that pre-season day one, but pre-season now is a time to get better and get fitter, not get fit, if that makes sense. Yeah. Pretty self-explanatory, yeah. So, um, and then, yeah, the end goal was to have, a player-driven environment where yeah you're trusted that on day one of preseason you come back you did the work and then uh, to go from there. So when you become older as a group overall and you create that player-driven environment, you, you trust it a lot more. So if we were to go to the physio or the coach and say, look, yeah, I'm I'm no good today. Like I'm literally I've got nothing. And I got to a couple. Of, I remember a couple of stages 
in my first three, four years where I was almost doing too much over training, where I'd rock up the training. And there was one time where I, I collapsed because my sugar levels were so low and all that kind of thing. But it's that point where we will trust it enough that you say, I'm, I'll put my hand up today and I, I'm, I'm no good. Um, and that takes a while to get there because, as I said, as a young group, I think you've, you need to be told what to do. So, yeah, we're, we're all lucky that it, it worked out for us because I think that's the main goal with most clubs, yeah, through my career in these days to, to be player-driven um, and to be fully trusted. But uh, we definitely had that in my time at St Kilda and that was, you know, built through Grant Thomas early days. And um, you know, thankfully for us, Ross had those same philosophies around hard work and training. I think Grant Thomas, they're slightly different. Grant Thomas early days, my first three or four years was just, it was the more the better kind of mentality. And then there was a real shift in his mentality and the fitness staffs about less is more. You probably heard that analogy thrown around a lot, but there was a really big shift and we actually used to say that. So, um, and then that was kind of continued through with Ross because of the playing group really, because the players drove that and saw how effective that was. So it just wasn't about, you know, flogging yourself literally every session because then you become vulnerable to injuries. It's about, um, what you do in the program being set out by the fitness guys who actually trust that and those individual sessions that you actually just make the most out of them and get the best out of yourself during that period instead of having to feel like you have to catch up on it. And and when you were um, going through that and going through like player-driven um, pre-seasons and that type of thing, was there ever periods where there was guys who were clearly in the best team but just didn't meet the standards or did everyone lift? And, and if there was... What would sort of happen inside a footy club when guys weren't meeting those standards? Oh, there's definitely times where guys were the most gifted players weren't weren't in physically in shape to do what was expected of them and to do what you know the team expectations to meet certain standards. There was from Grant Thomas to Ross again, we're lucky similar philosophies around it. Um, that there was no sacred cows. So from Nick Rewalt coming back and having the worst skin folds at the footy club, uh, he was put in fact, yeah. Famous fat club on Saturday mornings. <laughs> Guys coming back in poor shape with skin folds above. I think for midfielders above fifty and key positions were above fifty five. I think, but um, anything around that, you'd be in fat club. Um, <laughs> yeah, guys doing the wrong thing when they're injured and going out and maybe having two drinks. But there's some clear guidelines around that, some rules around certain things. Yeah, so we so we very much had that was there was no like uh, there was no sacred cows at uh, at our footy club. So. And that's, that's the standard. So when you set that standard, it's actually pretty easy to abide by because anyone that's going outside of that, it's really obvious. So, yeah, we're more lucky. And I think one of the things whilst we're on is uh, I struggle with early days. I was always a really hard trainer. I think that's what separated me as a junior as well. I understood that hard work would get me to more likely to get new places or give me the best chance. But when I got to AFL land, there was obviously a lot more of those guys that had that mentality. But um, it was just the consistency of it. I, I, I couldn't understand that these guys, uh, probably in my first four or five years, that these guys have been given an opportunity to play AFL football. And because it was so important to me, right, it was life or death at that stage. I didn't, I didn't have any responsibility. I was 17, 18, had, had a girlfriend, respectfully, a couple of times for that period. But it was all about me and my aspirations. But I couldn't understand why guys didn't feel and act and train and cared as much as I did. Uh, and, and Rui was the same, to be honest. Rui, Rui and I... As you may know, we're, we're best mates, but we very much have a lot in common. So we actually struggle with guys that would come to training and, you know, it's, you always get a, a number of guys skipping out of training because they got a sore hammy or, you know, all that kind of thing. When we had a, the hardest session of the week on a Saturday morning that, you know, guys pulling out and go, here he goes again. So, or just the level of training intensity 
from week to week. We couldn't understand. It took me a while to understand that everyone's everyone's different um, and everyone was brought up differently. Um, so there's some guys that aren't just actually capable of getting to, you know, mentally and physically to the level that, you know, say I was or Rui was and, and Lenny was and Haas was. But there has to be a certain level that they have to get to. So, um, you know, we, we may be up here and they, they may be here, but I think there's an, or there was an expectation around the footy club at Secure for 10 years that these guys that we hear really have to push themselves to get the best out of themselves. And if that best out of themselves was just here, well, that's, that's the baseline for them and, and the team. Um, but it took me four or five years to understand that. And I think once I did that, I, was, I had a lot more empathy and, and, and compassion for, for these guys that um, didn't quite have the same outlook on footy and, you know, and, and as, as life as me. So uh, it made it a little bit uh, uh, like stress-free for me because I was, wasn't having to think about what they were doing and worrying about my teammates, whether they come in out of shape and all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it took, it took me four or five years. On, it took myself and Rui in particular because we used to talk about it all the time. But it took us, took us a good four or five years to understand that. And uh, just while, before I forget it, what, what would happen in Fat Club? What was the difference between being in Fat Club and not being in Fat Club? Uh, well, yeah, it might be one skin fold, right? So uh, we've we're probably all read about the uh, skin fold test being obsolete now or, or canned in a number of um, professional sports. But back then it was really a baseline from, uh, of your, you know, your fitness or, or your weight, all that kind of thing. So you go to fat club, you'd have to make up, uh, there might be a couple of sessions during the week, one during the week across training. So there's essentially no real harm done on joints or anything like that it wasn't like they're getting flogged on the running track it was all about cross training there was uh circuits and gyms bike sessions swimming pool boxing so it's all cross training related but they'd have to make up two sessions a week in pre-season until they got below that again 50 skin folds for uh midfielders and and smalls and if you're a key position player ruckman i think it was 55 so if you couldn't get below that, you stayed in fat club up until <laughs> up until the start of season. So, and most guys wanted to get out of it because it was tough. But quite often, it got again, it got to a point where it wasn't so much fat club anymore because there'll be so many guys going in on a Saturday morning or doing the extra session with the the fat club guys that it just became extra session because we'd all go in there and just to get in extra work, regardless of what skin folds you had. But that's that's kind of the environment we all created. And behind closed doors, would um. Would, would being in fat club be like a, a real like thing to be ashamed of at the club? Like were you always <laughs> being reminded that you're in fat club? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But uh, Ru- Nick, Rui's in fat club every year. <laughs> Rui, Rui's, in be- Rui's in better shape. I want to say better shape. He's got uh, lower skin folds now than he ever did in his playing career. He, um, he was one of the highest. So our best player uh, and the highest profile player. And he looked like he was lean, right? He's nice ripped arms. He's got, we used to say he's got skinny chick legs. <laughs> But he'd always be carrying a, a bit around the midriff. He loved his food and his, his grazing in the off-season. So he'd come back to skiddies <laughs> in excess of 70 at times. So he was, he was always in there. Mind you, he's in fat club and then he'd come out and he wasn't so much endurance beast. He was a speed, speed endurance. So he'd come out and flog everyone in 250s or 400s or something like that and flog everyone else on the training track. So, uh, you yeah, know, Rui is uh, a, one of the main culprits of being in fat club every, every pre-season. Yeah, right. That's so interesting. And um, and you sort of said that like things stay pretty similar pre-season to pre-season and, and because Grant Thomas and Ross Lyon, your sort of main two coaches while you were at the club, particularly during the successful periods, um, had similar philosophies. They kept kept everything pretty similar. But would, to, like, I assume that if you're just coming back every year and, 
and particularly every every year for pre-season, things do get a bit monotonous in like in nature. Would would coaches bring like themes to pre-seasons or would they bring like would they start the preseason and and like come up with a new idea to get you motivated for that preseason in that year, or was it really just like, hey, let's get back, let's get back into work? Yeah, um, we didn't we didn't need too much outside influence in terms of motivation. Uh, I think as a whole playing group, we we drove one another really hard. It would change, so not to say that like if I think through my career, like especially individually, and even the core group of guys I was with, you know, Delcino, um, Lee Montagna. Uh, Manny Maguire, Luke Ball, Lee Fisher, Matty Ferguson, Xavier Clark. Rui's a bit older, but that core group of players for the first three or four years, our pre-seasons are mainly built around getting bigger and stronger, right? Because it all come in like little whippets. And then when we got to a point, like our, our weights program would change from pre-season to pre-season. So there's, things would change, but the philosophy around, you know, being the best and hardest trainers in the AFL never really changed. So that's why I said the road to that end goal kind of changed and deviated depending on the staff you had or depending on really the review from the year as well. So you come out and, and the fitness staff and coach to review and say, well, you know, we, we just weren't fit enough. We, we got the GPS results to reflect this. We got outworked. We weren't quick enough. We weren't powerful enough. So our then preseason training um, would actually change according to the season we just had. So that's where I think we got to a point through like 2000, Middle page, middle page of like four, five, six was roughly around the same. Uh, we went through a stage in that period where it was more power based. We had Adam Larkin, who was our head head of fitness, and he was very much about power. So we're actually doing a lot more like one fifties, two fifties, four hundred. I don't think we ran anything more than six hundred meters in preseason at once. And his like fitness test at the end of the year was at the end of preseason was um, six six four hundred or six two hundreds was his thing. So like. That was power base, and then, you know, ironically enough, there was a lot of injuries that next season, soft tissue injuries. Um, so we stopped that, and then we moved back to more of an endurance base. So it kind of evolved. So, yeah, it never really got bored, um, but there wasn't uh, – everyone was pretty self-driven. That's why I think, we, you know, we, had a, we were pretty lucky in the sense that we got everyone on the same page and everyone was willing to do what was necessary to suit, as I said, different levels before, but everyone was willing to, to pay the price to – to achieve the ultimate success, which we obviously didn't get, but we're lucky that we had a good group that were willing to do that. And during that like really successful period, um, particularly like the the 09 and, and 2010 years where you guys were pretty arguably the best best team in the comp and just didn't quite get it done um, on, on the big day, would you guys walk out in the ground and, and feel as a collective like you were the fitter, strongest team, no matter who you played? Was that something you pride yourself on? Yeah, we didn't necessarily use the term fitter and stronger. We, and I explained this in my time at Essendon and trying to explain to the group the feeling. And I, and I probably I probably envisage this is how Richmond felt over the last five years. This is how Brisbane felt. This is how Geelong felt in the you know, mid 2000s. It, it, was a, it was an unbelievable feeling that when you went to a game during the week, you went, you ran down the race before a game and you knew even the night before, which, you know, a night before a game can be quite stressful for a number of players. I was, you know, I was, I was pretty relaxed even early in my career, but I learned just to, um, to relax a lot more as I got a little bit older. But you slept easier at night the night before knowing that you knew what everyone was going to give the next day and you knew you were going to get from one another. So when you walked down that race, there was no question marks. I could look across to me and whether it's Lenny Hayes or Nick Rewald uh, or it's, you know, Stephen Milne or Rob Eddy, 
you know, which is he wasn't the most talented guy. Um, Andrew McWalter, these role players back in the day, but you knew exactly what you were going to get from them. And that was that was one of the most powerful things that I've ever felt in football. And the, the results reflect that, right? Like, regardless of who we played, where we played, what time, whether we're up or down in games, like, it, it always looked the same. And it's... Um, and that's, I think, that's that's the level you want to get to. And that was all based, that was just based on the work we had done, right, and the confidence. You gain confidence through actions, but through through preparation. There's no, you know, there's no confidence switch, right? Someone said, how do I get more confident? Well, you do the work. You consistently do the work. And then you start to see results and you get confidence. But that that was all just built on, on, on all the work that we had done. So there was an element that we, I think, probably subconsciously we knew we'll fit in stronger, but it was more, we actually verbally used to say it, like we know what we're going to get from one another today. Like just give great effort, play your role, and everything will take care of itself. As simple as it may sound, but it actually takes a lot of work to actually get to that point. So it is simple, but there's a, there's a lot of things that come together and fall into place before you actually get to that feeling. And then you sort of went to mention it before that that you so we're obviously talking about the time when you're at St Kilda, which was for the you know um, the the majority of your career. But then you went on and, and played for Essendon, um, and and shifted to Essendon during like one of the uh, like pretty arguably the craziest time in 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 a football club's history with the with the Essendon's drug like scandal and um, and all of that. And you sort of touched on that you were trying to explain to those guys the the feeling you would have in in the best team at the comp and what that would feel like on game day. So what was the shift like for you when you when you made the move from St Kilda during like a you know a real premiership pushing era into like a, a really crazy time at Essendon in, in in the drug scandal years? I think initially I I could it was exciting right. So at the time I'm sure we won't delve into it. It's more about how they train. Not to this is your life in football, but it was. Um, <laughs> The time of leaving St Kilda was the best decision for, for me and my family at that at that particular time, right? So I've got I got no regrets and people have tried to twist, you know, my words around that. No regrets being I made the decision. If I had a crystal ball, yes, I wouldn't have went to Essendon, right? Like no one in their right mind would have. But at the time I had no regrets. I, I was dealt I was dealt a shit hand after two months being at a footy club and I tried to deal with it the best way possible. So I have no no regrets whatsoever. So um, but going across I kind of knew what I was getting into, right? A younger team that hadn't had a hell of a lot of success since uh, their last final played in 2000, I think. Might have undersold. It might have been 2004. I think they got battled by Adelaide. We talked about it at the time when I was at the time at Essen. I think they got battled by 90 points. Nathan Lovett Murray played in Iraq, I think, and made a decision that day. It was quite famous. <laughs> and they got battled by 100 points in Adelaide. But that was their last finals performance before I arrived. And it wasn't a good one. But... Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a difference. Younger team, the training standards and the level of consistency and training standards weren't there. Albeit you had an absolute champion of the footy club in the game coaching them, um, but they were a reasonably young list and they didn't understand. They've never experienced what an elite, you know, footy team kind of looks like and how they train and how they prepare on a consistent basis. So but they were willing to learn, but that's, why, that's what's probably the most disappointing thing because – after the first two months, they were never given, you know, they, they never had their best chance of actually achieving that. When I say they, it should be we, but um, I can't somewhat separate myself because I wasn't, you know, I was directly involved in a sense, but I wasn't one of the, was it, the 32, whatever they tagged them as. Um, so we were never given our, 
you know, the best chance to actually succeed. So I would say footy was hard enough to perform consistently, um, you know, all things being equal and great in your life. But when you've got some personal issues, some, you know, some mental issues, or, you know, in this instance, significant football issues in your life, you, you, you can't perform at the level that's necessary at AFL level. You can't perform or you can't prepare. So that was probably the biggest thing. Our preparation was just always compromised. So, um, but saying that, we, we did our best to, to try and create that culture um, in those years up until, you know, Herdy had left, Bomber took over. You know, that's why I wish just we had had a clear run because I truly felt that the potential was there to achieve something great at that particular time. It's just that we had, we had so many obstacles in the way, it was impossible to actually get to where we wanted to get to. So that's why now I sit back and people ask me, where's your heart lie? And I probably, I'll probably say Essendon respectfully, just because I know more of the players of, you know, selfishly had a direct influence on their careers and, you know, the way they go about things. Um, I've got a real, real deep, direct connection to the actual playing group. So, yeah, I just, I just don't, we never got to where we wanted to get to. So I used to talk about those things and used to talk about, you know, what's actually needed to, to get to that stage or that feeling. And they were all ears. They loved, you know, wanted to get there, but I just, I just, it was, it was just too, too compromised, I think, at the time. Yeah, just for for people who aren't quite sure what we're talking about here, um, Brendan walked into to the Essendon Footy Club at at a time where they'd sort of been, um, you know, well they've they've been sort of formally uh, charged with it all and stuff. Is 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 they were involved in a? Oh, it was two it was two months. That I arrived uh, my first day at Essendon was actually on a training camp in Colorado. Yeah, and that was at the start of November or the very end of October. We got back. Um, two months later, Jan 13, I think was the date, was where we self-reported. Yes. Which is a day or two after the club were notified that we were being investigated by... Uh, Asada. Asada, and I think even that stage, the name had been dragged you know, to the uh, federal police. Yeah. That's how it all started. And then we self-reported, and then from there, you know, the next, <laughs> the next four or five years were, were really compromised and selfishly... Yeah, I was 27 when I arrived at Essendon. Yeah, you know, my the prime of my career um, was compromised. As long as these other guys, there's essentially lost four years of our careers. Yeah, can I ask about that? So, I like I had Jason Ackermanis on the podcast, and and he sort of proudly talks about you know what Brisbane at their time during their successful period were doing to to sort of you know push boundaries and and do everything they could to, to win. Like he told a couple of crazy stories, you know, like about... Um, Being on the drip and stuff. But yeah, on the drip on, and, and a few other things. Like he told this one really, really crazy story, which is probably the craziest story I've heard on this podcast so far, was that <laughs> they they got the Qantas pilot to fly their plane at 20,000 feet every time they flew instead of 38,000 feet. Yeah. And he, he said that they did that every single time they flew right throughout their premiership years, every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and, and I've since talked to a couple of Qantas pilots about that uh, and, and they think that would have been costing, you know, Qantas as a, as a corporation, you know, forty fifty thousand dollars every every single time they'd fly, which is like... Because of fuel. Yeah, because of fuel. Which is crazy, um, and then and then I guess you walk into Essendon and coming from a culture of of really hard work and player driven hard work and and that sort of thing to to maybe a club that was looking for some shortcuts maybe maybe more what was happening in those really early two thousand days when I hear stories from from Jason. So can I get your take on like how did you view it when you walked in like when you walked into it and it all started exp- started exploding? 
what was what was your going through your head? Did you know about it beforehand? Well, like I only only I'd only heard names and a, a bit of uh, dribs and drabs through my time in Colorado with the lads, and again that was my first interaction with them. I knew Joe before and come across through the players, but um, talking to the guys intimately, you know, Stephen Dank's name was mentioned. The weapon who was still involved at the time, Dean Robinson's name was. Like we didn't have a formal convo about it, but I, I'd understood about the injected injectables program or the injection program. Um, I didn't I didn't really ask too many questions at the time, so it was only up until that time they self-reported I started to really ask questions and delve into it with the boys. So I, I kind of just I just found I found out more about it and what was involved as as time went on through mainly that 2013 period, early 2013. Once they self-reported us started saying what you know what the fuck was going on like kind of thing um because obviously really concerning right so um and through everything we experienced um yes the boys weren't 100 percent sure what they'd been injected with they put a lot of trust into certain individuals so did hurdy so did reedy delegate and put a lot of trust in individuals but they they're adamant that they they'd done nothing wrong in terms of took nothing illegal, as is Stephen Danks, and so as the footy club. That's probably the hardest bit to swallow is that I believe that too, is that these boys and us as a footy club and individuals lost four or five years of our lives, footy lives, but this has affected guys ongoing, right? So this is this has a long-lasting effect on certain things throughout their life and, and you know, mentally, and we'll have it long-lasting effect until they're under the ground but uh they've been found guilty for something that they never did so you want to make an analogy it'd be like someone being convicted of murder and spending life in prison and they never did it so um because you got to remember asada found them guilty uh but there was actually no one ever tested positive so it was arguably all just based on assumption and, and guesswork they got found guilty so there's not one positive drug test in all of this. So you go, how do they get banned if there's no one tests positive? It's in a simplistic way, right? So I know there's a, there's a lot more to it and there's a lot more water that went under the bridge, but at the end of the day, not one player got test positive. So, and no one said that they took anything illegal or anything like that or admitted to, to it. When I say admitting it, there's only one guy that really knows whether they did or not. And that's Stephen Dank. So it's... uh when you all look back on it, reflect on it, it's, um, yeah, it's quite striking, really. Yeah, and if this isn't too much to ask, like, because you sort of just brought it up, and it's something I've always wondered. Like, I've all one of my main questions about this every time I heard of it was, how do you guys, the players, feel about Stephen Dank? Like, is he someone who, um, you know, at the time you personally as players were like, well, fuck this guy, like. He's essentially mm. like experimenting with our with our bodies and with our careers, and yeah. and he doesn't give a fuck. Or there's a bit of that, but yeah, a lot of anger and frustration towards him from, from players. But that's why I said at the end of the day, they they truly believe that they didn't take anything illegal. So as as kind of rogue as this individual was, when I say individual, and Dean Robinson because he was part of it, he set up the program and, and got Danksy in. Is that they they still they still believe that they were given nothing illegal? So yeah, it was. The governance and everything there was there was a lot of a lot of dodgy kind of shit and a lack of records and all that kind of thing but um at the end of the day they didn't think Stephen Dank gave them anything illegal and if they and if literally if they did they literally they don't know about it because again 
analogy I've used is like you, Jack, going to your GP to get, <laughs> because of the times, go get your COVID shot, right? And you think it's a COVID shot, but what, a, what a, it could be steroids for, you know, it could be, you're just trusting that it's a COVID shot, right? So you go to see Stephen Banks and he said, you're taking, uh, you're taking Thymacin, what was the illegal one? Thymacin beta 4 or whatever. You're taking Thymacin and, and he sticks a needle in you and your trust is just Thymacin. So, uh, and that, and that's, and then people ask, well, why is there more questions asked around all this? And guys, we're asking questions. But when you're at a footy club, you do have full trust in the footy program and the people involved that they're doing the right thing by you. So, yeah, in this instance, they arguably weren't because they were, the amount of injections they were getting were kind of ridiculous. But you're still trusting that this individual is, is doing the right thing by you and the right thing by everyone by giving you the, the injection that he said he was going to give. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating to think about it in that way, um, which I haven't really thought about it in that way. But um, yeah, if you went on my Facebook, there is a, a lot of people who believe that we're not just getting be, being uh, injected with COVID COVID shots at the moment. So it's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but you know, that's what we've done as a society, right? Trust that, that those experts and you know that they're doing the right thing by us. Yeah, that's it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and so for from like from your point of view, someone who wasn't involved in that that saga and had come from a really successful period at St Kilda into that sort of you know shitstorm that it was, and and then um, like you talked about it, about sort of having three or four years of your career almost like taken away from you, and and by that I assume you largely mean like you guys were never going to have real success in that period. No, it was impossible. We couldn't, as talented as we were, and as much as we wanted it, we just we just couldn't. 2014 was an unbelievable effort to make the finals. Yeah, we made the – was it four – no. Yeah, it was – and it was at 15 we got booted out of the finals. But 14 we played North Melbourne, I think, up by six goals at halftime and got beaten. But that was just, I think, through a lack of experience and lack of – yeah, which is a, a great learning experience. That's why I thought 15, I think – correct me if I've got this timeline out of whack and got it wrong, but 15 getting booted out of the finals. Because at that stage we always thought we're going to – the boys are going to get off and we can get on with life, right? So it's like we made the finals and we talked about it. You get this, we need to play finals to get the experience to actually, because I truly believe in, um, you know, doing, a, doing the apprenticeship. I know the Bulldogs and Richmond have kind of debunked that, but they are the first teams in decades that have done that, come from outside the eight. So to do your apprenticeship, play a couple of years of finals, experience what's needed, all that kind of thing, get that experience, and then you can really launch into, you know, that top four and give yourself a real chance. So to miss out on an opportunity in 15, at the time was devastating because I, I knew and coaches, mainly the guys that have been there and done it before, they, they knew how important that was. And then, yeah, again, we didn't know what was ahead of us, but, yeah, at the end of 15, then 32 guys get banned for a year and <laughs> we're filling a team with top-ups in 2016 and I was captain in the club. So, uh, But at a particular time, it was a really important part of the, the, the team and the club and players' development to play finals back-to-back years. And we got that kind of taken away from us. Yeah, well, 2013 was the year you guys got booted from the finals, wasn't it? Because, um, oh, was it? Yeah, well, I'd, I'm pretty sure it was, and the reason I remember that is because I'm a Richmond supporter. Yeah. Uh, and Carlton, obviously, so you guys won like I think 14 games that year, and Carlton, who finished ninth, won won like 11 or something, and and they so they took your spot in the finals and and played oh, yeah. Richmond, who finished fifth, and I was sort of thinking like, oh yeah, because like the guys who. Uh, finished fifth, play the guys who finished eighth, which is Carlton because yep. Essendon got kicked out. And, and I was like, oh, we're on here. And then she was at 13. So 13, then we played 14 against Kangaroos. Yeah. 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 And um, 
And I was convinced that the Tigers had an easy win in that first week of the finals when we were up to like, you know, 30, 40 points or something at halftime and then ended up losing. And that was when I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't keep going for a footy team as strongly. It's, it's, too, it's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I remember those 2013 final series pretty well. Um, but yeah, so when you, when you were sort of going through all of that, were you, were you as motivated as ever, particularly like when you were training and at preseason or did you sort of have like a, a hopelessness and, and thought, well, we can't fucking win here. Like, mm. what am I doing? Like, how am I, how, how, how can I keep showing up day in, day out and, and training as hard as what I was when I was at the Saints when, when I knew a premiership was, was ours if we, if we wanted it? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I don't think you'd be human if I didn't. I'd, I'd actually be concerned for myself if I didn't think like that. So I remember at a time, I think it was when we got booted out of the finals in 14, is that I went to my car and 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 cried for like an hour in the car park and and had deep thoughts about regret and coming to the footy club and thinking what the fuck's going on like you know and at that stage like what what do i do what i started thinking about myself and you know whether you know i, I don't think any i don't know there might be a few but i don't think anyone would blame me if i actually got up and walked out right and said I'm, I'm done with this and get me went to my manager and said i want out but there's this i'm not, I'm not that i'm not that person i'm um I'm happy to go through hard times. Um, you know, I, I'd say I'm the most loyal person I know. Um, so that's my wife. <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, after quickly, not quickly, but moving on from that, I quickly, my, my motivation to shift, right? It was, it was different motivation. I still rocked up. I still had the motion to train hard and I did. I trained really hard. Trainers, you know, because probably touching on, more about the training side of it. I got to a point in my career after the first few years of being in the AFL system. And I think doing my knee in, in my third year, so it was 2005, that was a real turning point in my career because I was always a really hard trainer and I wanted to be the best trainer, but there was a real shift because at the timing of my ACL and when I made the decision to stay home all of the off season, I actually went away on footy trip for maybe two weeks at the start. And the next six to seven weeks, I actually stayed in Melbourne and trained four to five times a week, like worked my ass off. Like, you know, the, the stories about behind the scenes and Muhammad Ali's favourite quote about, you know, the work done behind the scenes, you know, away from the lights, all that kind of thing. That's the, that's the approach it too. I, I really made a shift. And what that did is that created, created a habit of training and a habit of doing things and a way of doing things that I really couldn't go back from. It was a, it was a standard I'd set. And even if I wanted to, like that story I said, driving into training, I felt shit house. The guilt would kick in because I'd, I'd set a certain standard. So I didn't, I got to a point where I actually didn't know how to train any other way. Like I, I thought about it, but I didn't, I couldn't because I'd, 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 I'd have too much guilt for my, myself. And I, so, and that can be learned. I, I learned it. I already trained, I believe I trained to a high level, but I, I got to a certain level in my career through hard work and creating really good habits. And where, where it was just literally, it was just, it would just like put your left foot in front of your right is that every time I did something, I had to do it the best of my ability because that's how I trained myself. But the, the ACL is where I really, I really took things, that recovery phase, that's where I really took things to a new level for me, which I then, I feel like I maintained through the rest of my career. Yeah, I, I um I sort of from the outside looking in would always have assumed these things about you that you're saying. And, and you really do come across like a, a really passionate, driven, hardworking guy. If um, if there was like one player in the AFL right now who you could take under your wing and try and 
you know, instill these things that are clearly in you into them to make them a better player, who would it be? I don't know. Like, I don't know too many people intimately to, to like J- Jakey, Jakey Stringer. We, I'd love to see, and I, I tried a bit. Like, I didn't push him, but he's one of those guys I feel, and I, we get along well. I like Jakey. Jakey's a really, really good guy. He's, he's misunderstood. But I think he's one of those guys that, you know, I was talking about that level guys can only get to. They can't. If I, you know, if I sat down with Jake and said, mate, you just need to train train with me and train to my level for, you know, for four weeks of this preseason. Like, uh, it's just not his genetic makeup to, to do that and to be able to do that, right? So he's just one of those guys that can get to a certain level. And it's, I think for most people, it's like just staying in their comfort zone. And that's like, I think that's like most of society, right? <laughs> that, that it's easy to stay in your comfort zone, take risks, whether it be in business life or anything. It's... A lot of people just stay in that safe comfort zone because the thought of moving out of that is is scary. So I think he's just one of those guys. I'd love to see him, but there's just some guys that just again just aren't capable of doing that. That's so Jakey's one. If I you know said that if he could train as hard and consistent and do what I did, you know he's a bit more talent than I did. So, but if he did do that, he'd be like a legitimate superstar, right? That's what that's what makes. The difference, as I said, between good and great, from being an average player to a sort of superstar, is that you got that talent. You mix talent with really hard work. You got you got your Nate Fives and you got your Paddy Jane Fields and you know Dusty's probably a little bit exception. He probably did, does it a little bit differently in terms of doesn't so much love the the running and the the preset and stuff, but works really hard. Cross training, boxing. Um, later in his career, started to really thrive on doing weights. So. So he's a bit of an exception, probably thrown in there with Dane Swan. But um, majority of these superstars is guys that have had the talent mixed with being really hard workers or the hardest workers at the footy club to get, get the superstars. And are you going to sort of take this attitude and this mindset and, and, and this experience into the coaching game or, or into, into any other part of football? Or are you just going to stay with the media and, and maybe pursue some other stuff in business? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, yeah, I love the thought of actually – as a challenge for myself, getting out of the footy world. But um, I said it when I retired that it's not that I don't want to get into coaching because I don't, I don't want to. It's just that I need to take a breather. But um, because of the lifestyle choice too at the time, we didn't talk about that before, but coaching is more time-consuming than playing. So that's one of the big reasons I want to step away. But uh, media, I don't see um, you know any long career in that. It's actually quite difficult. So um, – so that's just, I love talking football. I you know, love watching football, staying involved that way. But um, I'm just starting, yeah, to get back into football. Um, I'm doing some coaching. Well, my, my official role is head of game plan and strategy down at St. Kevin's Old Boys here. Are you based in Victoria? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Ballarat in Victoria. Yeah, so in the VAFA here. So my best mate's just taken over as head coach at the end of last season. Um, so I'm, you know, essentially assistant coach. But, um, yeah, I love that side of it. I love helping guys but mind you I, I always gravitated like I, I was willing to help anyone at footy club and guys that played with me know that but I didn't have any time for guys that were, were bullshitters and you know I wanted guys that actually I gravitated to to guys and guys gravit younger guys gravitated towards me that legitimately wanted to get better and enjoyed the honest and open conversations that we would have and I didn't you know I think only naturally right I think people that are like helping people, you tend to gravitate towards guys that want to be helped because there's a lot of people and, you know, players as well that want to say they get better and talk the talk, but they don't necessarily, it doesn't reflect in their actions. So 
yeah, I love helping people, and and that's the that's that's an area where I, I need to get better as well. Uh, you know, as, as a player, as a senior player, as as captain of footy club at Essen at the time, um, that I you know need to be willing to help people or give them actually the tools to get better. But uh, yeah, I, I love it. So enjoying my time. It's only early. Uh, you know, we're only a couple of months into the coaching side of things at St Kevin's, but um, you know, getting back into football is something I'm definitely looking at more. Yeah, more so because. I've missed it a bit, you know. And now that I've been involved with St Kevin's for a couple of months, I like I'm loving helping the, you know, we're a pretty young group, but loving, loving helping these guys and you know, thriving on the fact that I'm you know, actually having a, an impact on, um, or could possibly have an impact on these guys' um, footy careers at, at a lower level, albeit. But um, yeah, really enjoying it. Yeah, I've just got two more questions before we wrap up, Brendan. Um, and and I'm actually just like asking you specifically because because you're someone whose opinion I want on both of these things. Um, and, and this first one, it's sort of like it really interests me because I've I've been a guy who's who's done a lot of individual sport uh, my whole life with with running and triathlon and that sort of thing. But you're a, you're a team sport guy. I know you play a bit of golf and do some individual stuff, but yeah. but your profession has been team sport. How how sort of like interesting is it that you're drafted into a club and you have like specific coaches who are given to you and you have to follow and and like say you for for your career you've had like four or five coaches um and some of them can be great and and take you through to premierships some of them can make some poor decisions and put the club backwards like do you ever think about that and and like um and how big an impact the coaches you specifically had on you and like do you think that that like the club picking the right coach is sort of like the most important thing that a club can do? Uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd, yeah, I would argue for that. Um, mainly based on my experience and now now what I believe in, right, because I said earlier that as young kids growing up as teenagers and, and being young men is your only reflection of the people, you know, your parents and, and probably your siblings and the people you hung around with early life. And then I can confidently say that uh, Grant Thomas as a coach and Ross Lyon in particular had a huge influence of and had an impact of, you know, the man I am today. So, and I think that's what great coaches do. So that's why they are so important is not only do great coaches and great clubs, mind you, great clubs are only made up of the sum of its parts, right? So the people involved. So great coaches, great clubs really not only have an impact and improve one's football career and football ability, but they actually have an impact on one's life because what they instill there's a real crossover. So we know we're generally talking football when we're at footy clubs, but a lot of these guys, when you do it, when you've done it for long enough, is that you find yourself having the same, you know, beliefs and, and morals and stuff, you know, post football now that I've retired, that when, what we had when we're actually playing. And, the, and so that's why, you know, the coach is so important. And I, I truly believe I've said this for years, even though I sound like I'm pissing in my own pocket probably again, but, I feel I firmly believe that um, an AFL coach and all it's got it's starting to go this way anyway that they're, they're hiring people that are the best manager of men rather than being great tactically and great footy minds that it's almost like the soccer title that is a manager. I think football coaches first and foremost their greatest skill and their greatest strength should be their ability to manage their playing list and manage individuals knowing how, what, getting to know them on a personal level, getting, knowing what makes them tick, um, all that kind of thing to ultimately get the best out of each individual for, you know, a, a, uh, a bigger picture. Yeah. 
So um, that's why, apart from having, and then and then below that, so delegate and go out and actually hire people that that kind of feel your weaknesses as a senior coach. Go and go and hire the footy IQ genius, two or three of them, and assistant coaches to be you know that kind of conduit between the, the players and the senior coach. But I, I firmly believe that a senior coach coach strength should be his ability to manage to manage the men and or to use analogies drive the bus. Yeah. And and if you could change one thing about the AFL world as a whole, doesn't even have to be at Clubland, what what would it be? Put me on the spot. Hmm. Jeez. I could write a long list of this if you gave me time. So I don't have one. <laughs> Your top five things you would change. Uh, I, I, I firmly believe AFL players should be paid more. To be honest, when you stack us up against the rest of the world, when you stack us up against times are different now, but prior to COVID, when you're talking about um, total percentage of you know revenue or income or whatever the salary cap is, you know players players should have the ability to actually, you know, for myself, play 17 years and actually, you know, essentially retire. I know we're not going to be on the money that NBL and NFL players and all that get, but their percentage of total revenue that goes towards the salary cap is something like 50. I think from NHL hockey, all American sports is anywhere between 35 to 52% or something. And AFL is sitting at 25%. So I, I think based on what we do and the athletes we are, I, I say we're the greatest all-round athletes in the world, respectfully, for you know, ball sports, that is. You guys were talking about you were doing triathlons and stuff before, but um, from a team sport and ball sport point of view, I think AFL players are the most rounded, gifted athletes in the world. And you know, should get paid accordingly. So uh, that's one thing. Um, and there's, there's plenty of others. I'll go down the yeah. path. And you can go into <laughs> them. Let's go into them. I asked for one, but I'll take I'll take five. Yeah, no, no. So that so that so that's one thing. Um, yeah. So and and there's I think there's a real. Um, I still think we're years away from it, but um, there's a real perception or misperception of of you know players' loyalty and where it lies within footy clubs. So I think. Meeting supporters and general public is, I've said it for for many years. The most loyal people in football are the supporters. So, um, I think the general public and supporters need to get their head around that and where footy's you know slowly going, and where it'll get to is, you know, players need to start making decisions that's best for them, not um, you know, best for the team or best for the club, because you know the club will cut you off at the knees, given the first chance if it suits them, and it's best for them. So, um, you know, for uh, so regarding free agency and player movement and stuff will become a regular thing. You know, even mid-season drafts, NBA style, we're, we're a long way off that, but I think we'll eventually get to that. But to just to debunk that, you know, loyalty card and where that lies just with the general public because that can be used against players and have quite a significant effect on players' decisions and, and what they do. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the media. What, what would you change there? Oh, I just think that, no, now nowadays, even even prior to COVID, there's this, there's so many media outlets now that I, everything's just. Well, I can say there's probably most sports. Everything's just so overanalyzed. So the criticism on players, teams, and individuals is just is unfair. So that's why I think a lot of us would love to. I would have loved to do like a documentary through our playing career on our team or whatever, and actually what's, you know what's actually done behind the scenes and what it actually takes because people only see the end product, right? People only see what happens on a Saturday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and they, they've kind of got tunnel vision, but they actually don't know what guys go through mentally, physically to get themselves up for games of footy, how they deal with pressure, the pressure, you know, how pressure or what pressure, how it affects individuals. 
because I think if they knew all this, they wouldn't, you know, a lot of a lot of the media wouldn't write what they write. A lot of the general public wouldn't say and write what they do now on social media and, you know, Twitter, which is just a, an opinion-based forum, right? So everyone's got an opinion now just based on how, how things have changed. So if, if they knew what really goes on and really happens and the challenges behind the scenes Monday to you know, Friday, they I don't think they would write and say half the things they'd do. Yeah, I'm with you there. One of my like biggest pet hates about the AFL, which is a, a game I love, is that it's uh it's just a constant trial by media for for a lot of players and a lot of clubs, and yeah. and I hate like the negativity that's that's in the media, and we like very rarely celebrate good things in the AFL, and and, and like headline news is always the the shit the shit stuff that's going on or the perceived shit stuff or you know really taking the personal element away from from the person and and making them the footballer, which I don't really. <laughs> I don't really love, um, so I'm with you there. Like, imagine how good it would be if we scrapped that. People, so, so it's like supporters and, and people just see players as like a an object at the end of the day, like property of. They almost think that's like property of the public, yeah. property of the AFL. But like, they're just people. <laughs> they're just people, and they they got they got feelings, and they're not they're not immune to it. Yes, we know the responsibilities that we have as footballers and what you sign on as, but you know I've. I've a lot softer in my old age, haven't I? But <laughs> I didn't have these. I didn't have these feelings when I was younger and just coming through. And times have changed as well. But yeah, people have got to really un- understand what what they actually go through and what it takes to to actually run out on a weekend, and actually play, and give the you know supporters and fans what they want to see, and just con- around consistency and, and how difficult it is to play consistent footy from week to week. Like you said before, that you rarely saw me play a bad game, but I played bad games. But I, I like again as a footy club, we we always said you can have a bad game as long as you're trying to you know play your role and give great effort. But you, you, the great players and great teams don't do it back to back weeks, right? So it's quickly forgotten about. But the players that are in poor form that have been great players and they're going through a lean patch, they like it feels as if now they just get dragged through the mud and analysed to the nth degree. That it's just like it's 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 it's, un, it's unfair. Yeah, yeah. The old school AFL media. If there that if there was one thing I could change, not that anyone cares about my opinion about that, but it would be that. I, I hate that about it. And uh yeah. and it's why it would be so good if like people like you, like ex players who who have that view could be in the media rather than the guys getting the job jobs are, are the guys who are willing to, to say the negative thing. Um or are like almost forced Which is negative. Like people say oh, I used to be negative, but because uh, and I think there's a <laughs> Australians are They've got the tall poppy syndrome, right? Probably worse than any other nation in the world, country in the world, is that we've got this thing about tall poppy syndrome. We just don't want to celebrate other people's success yeah. that much, unlike other countries, particularly in America and, you know, sportsmen and, that, you know, a bit of their carry-on and all that and, you know, how they uh, how they celebrate, you know, a guy moving from one team to another and getting paid, at, you know, a shitload of money they celebrate. Like we're in Australia or, you know, the, the supporters would, yeah, go and burn the house down. <laughs> God, thing. They actually they might yeah. celebrate other people's success. So that's it. That's it. There's a real disease in Australia with that. I think. But. Yeah, it's the opposite of what we're be- what we're about on this podcast. We're all about getting people on and celebrating how good they are, and and uh, and even if they won't admit it. Oh. Yeah, no. There's a, there, there is there are people to still do. Yeah, not to say that I mean, we're, we're sounding negative in the sense that it's we're saying that it's all negative. It's not all negative, but no. it's definitely. The narrative is mostly around negativity and all the things that are going wrong or individuals are going wrong, clubs are going wrong. You know, the, the headhunting from the media for coaches' heads and stuff is fucking sickening these days. It's, it's outrageous, yeah. 
they smell blood. There's blood in the water, and they just there's like a fucking shark. It's 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 disgusting. And that's something that I always said as a player going to the media. Now I'm in that position, and I give my opinion. Don't get me wrong, but I, I never like I never I never hunt. I'd give my honest opinion, but I don't I don't hunt stories, and I don't I don't sniff the blood in the water kind of thing. That's um. I'll, I'll, I'll say what I feel is right at the time, but I won't, I won't hang him out to dry as such. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And that's one of the big reasons why I got you on because my, um, the way I see you is as a guy who, who gives a really like good, well thought out and never like, you know, you, you never just say things to say things. You always think about the things you say and, uh, mm-hmm. and then top that off with, with how hard I know you worked as a player from from stories I've heard and and clearly from what what you've told us today. Well, yeah, I've actually got you, you want an, you want an exclusive. Love exclusives. <laughs> well, I don't think we've ever got one, so this might be our first exclusive. So, um, working in the media last year it was yeah, it was last year. I uh, I did I commentated the uh, the Essendon uh, Richmond game. It was the one up in Cairns, I think it was, or up north. Uh, Richmond not winning, but um, Grimes from um, Richmond. Was, was through his um, staging through that little period where he was staging free kicks. And I said on radio, I called it how it is. I said, you know, he's a great player, like seriously good player, but he needs to stop staging because I thought it was going to tarnish his career to a point where like, he'd be remembered as a, you know, like Matty Lloyd is, the, the velvet sledgehammer who used to stage. Um, now I'm sitting around at home the following week and I got a phone call from a private number and uh, I was sitting in front of my computer just like this. I was like, oh, this is a weird time to get a I, was, I think I was actually expecting a, a, a call from a tradie that was coming around. So I thought it might be him. So I don't normally answer private numbers. So I answered it and it's um, was like, how are you going? And it's like, yeah, uh, BJ, it's Dimmer. I was like, uh, yeah, Dimmer, how are you, mate? He goes, yeah, I just want to give you a call that um, I just thought you were out of place. Um, and I had a lot more respect for you before this, but you're out of place when you make comments about um, Grimes on the weekend. He's staging. Um, and we had a long chat and he said, he, at one point he said, look, I, I know you work in the media and you've got to say things to keep your job. And I said, Dimo, I'll just stop you there, mate. I, I, don't, I don't say things that I have to say or need to say to keep a job. Like, I'm honest. And, yeah, I respect that you gave me a call and we had a chat about it. I truly was. But um, uh, I stand by my, stand by my comments. Um, but I firmly said to him, I, I, don't, I don't say things that I don't believe in or I need, I've, don't say things that just to, to keep my job or to, to appease other people. So, so Dib and I had a good chat and, uh, you know, a respectful chat and, and that was that. <laughs> so there's an exclusive that I, that I haven't talked about publicly. That's such a wild phone call to get. Like your head must be racing when you get that phone call because you're just sitting at home on a, a random night expecting a tradie to come around and <laughs> next minute you know you're getting three-time premiership coach Damien Hardwick giving you a call yeah. to – to 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 tell you he doesn't respect you as much as what he he did before before the weekend like because of your comments and you know i actually like because I, I knew exactly where he was coming from like and that's why one of the reasons i feel that they love him so much because he's he went into bat for his teammates so he he's not he, he's not just saying it either he actually felt like i was out i was out of line and he wanted to make that clear so and that's you know and, and I, that's why I, res, I respect that and i said to him i respect and, and thanks thanks for giving me a call is I could say, you know, for an player, you'd one of the great traits about him is that you're going to bat for any of his players. So, yeah, 
You would love that as a player, wouldn't you? That's right. Yep. And that's a, one of the things that makes him great, I think. Yeah. You do wonder, like you said, how coaches, like one of their main roles now is to be like a man manager and, and almost to create a culture of, of acceptance and, you know, love within a team. And, and to hear that a coach does that to you, like pretty innocuous comment, really. Like you were, you made the comment, but, you know, it, it's it's probably something you assume doesn't even get to his ears, really. But he, he goes out of his way to make that call. That's um, Yeah, I, he probably did because it was written then in the paper a number of times. But it, again, it wasn't just me. But um, And you could, I, like in my head, you couldn't dispute the fact, like a, regardless you're rich in sport or not, like, and I've been there. I, I said, I, I, on like in the, in the public, I, I would stage for a free kick, uh, like bad, one, once in my life. And it was so embarrassing in seeing the footage afterwards that I said I'd never do it again. You know, I hope it didn't. I may have exaggerated a little bit of contact here and there, but literally staging for free kicks, I never did it again. It was so embarrassing. And then, you know, funny enough, I, ch- uh, I chuckled later on that he, you know, Grimes, he did an interview, I think a week or two later and, and said that, you know, he needs to, he, he, he had stage, he admitted to doing it and he needs to, you know, clean up his act. So Dimmer kind of said that he doesn't, well, he's alluding to the fact that he doesn't, right? So I had a bit of a chuckle. So Yeah, what a story. Thanks for sharing that, mate. I love the exclusive and it was a good story too. That's all right. I wonder how, many, uh, how much legs it'll get. It's, uh, it's the off season still, so they don't have much to write about for you. So it might be in the paper now or whenever this podcast put up. Yeah. It's probably not probably not quite negative enough to get a get a run at this time of year. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for jumping on, mate. Um, yeah, like I've made pretty evident, you're you're a guy who I sort of look up to a bit and and um, and really admire the way you go about things. I, I love your passion. I, I love how how hard a worker you are. And and yeah, it was um, it was awesome to have a chat. So thanks heaps for com- for coming on. Yeah, no problem, mate. Anytime.